Okay, good evening and welcome to my digital talk. Today I have a very special guest, a stellar political analyst and Jew um, economic expert. Uh, this is Pippa Malmgren and the name is probably familiar to some of you who have been listening and watching my last digital talk with her father, Harold Malmgren, when we actually covered global system transformation. Today, our focus is put on geoeconomic shifts and trends, and it's going to be a very exciting one hour where we will also cover all interesting signals. Pippa has actually written a book on signals. Uh, so before we start, I would like to introduce uh, Pippa Malmgren. She is an American pol uh, policy and e economic analyst. She has also served as special assistant to the president of the United States, George W. Bush, for economic policy on the National Economic Council and is a former member of the US President's Working Group on Financial Markets, a topic that is still quite relevant and we will touch upon it. Uh, she has been the founder of uh, several startups, really interesting companies, and currently she is in charge of a, also, I just found out a very interesting drone company. So I would like to hear from her what she's currently doing. But before that, I also want to say that she has obtained her PhD from the London School of Economics and she is currently based in London. So we will also talk about Brexit and UK and of course, future outlook for the relations with Europe and uh, United States. So people probably first tell us a little bit uh, about what you are currently doing and uh, uh, your current ongoing uh, and ongoing projects. Oh, well, it's great to see you and thank you for having me on. So, gosh, I've been doing a lot of things during COVID. It's actually been a period when I had a lot of quiet time. So I'm uh, about to announce a new company that I'm creating. Uh, but I've been active in the drone space for quite some time, and I have a consulting business in that space. Um, I think innovation there is happening at incredible speed. And I've been writing books uh, the last few years about leadership. Um, particularly since we keep having such dramatic leadership failures and it's an explanation as to why, but I'm starting to work on the sequel to Signals, uh, which was all about um, how do you identify signals about the future that are not yet confirmed by the data? Uh, and, and geopolitics has always been a very strong interest of mine and it's very interesting being in Britain at this moment, both post-Brexit and post-COVID. I think the economy here and the geopolitics are about to become much more interesting and and relevant. So we can talk about that. Oh, absolutely. So this is uh, indeed fascinating news uh, regarding your current activities and uh, the startup that you mentioned, but also regarding your uh, most recent book uh, projects. Uh, but you have been too modest, uh, so I want to also use the opportunity to point to another very interesting book that I have uh, found uh, really interesting. 
which is uh, actually geopolitics for investors. Uh, so I suppose that at some point you probably would also consider updating this one uh, because investors are now uh, discovering that there is such thing called geopolitics. And uh, this is the reason why I actually want to put the main focus on uh, this nexus between politics and economics, mm -hmm. which uh, is uh, very much what we call geoeconomic, uh, geo so geoeconomic uh, shifts uh, and signals and trends where, uh, will be uh, at the center of our analysis. And uh, first, I would like to ask you to give us uh, your assessment and also anticipation for the global economy following the COVID-19 crisis. Let me just um, uh, point to the recent, uh, to the recent uh, outlook uh, that was published by the International Monetary Fund. Not that they are actually, uh, that they have been actually correct uh, with their... <laughs> They've been terrible, but go ahead. <laughs> but, uh, uh, for the matter for the merit for the matter of uh, being of being uh, you know factual <laughs> so that our audience also uh, is presented with the current uh, with the current uh, uh, reports uh, they have actually produced quite a quite a positive quite an optimistic view on uh, the global economy um, post covid 19 with percentages of growth that are uh, astonishing, uh, given uh, the, the the current situation. So that is why I would like to uh, to to actually hear your opinion about that. Are we going to indeed experience a sort of roaring twenties, just like just like uh, a century ago, or is it more a direction towards a new depression? with searching food and uh, energy prices, uh, certain infl inflationary trends are already uh, there. So what is your take on all these macro macro trends and geoeconomic, uh, so to say, outlooks? Yes, absolutely. And I, I, don't, I don't envy the poor folks at the IMF who have to make these projections. It's a, it's a tough job they have. But I first of all think that it's very, very important to understand that there will not be a single narrative that defines the recovery from COVID. We're going to have many, many different things happening simultaneously, even within individual countries. So in the industrialized world, I definitely see uh, many signs of an extraordinary recovery that happens faster, stronger, than anyone expected, but that doesn't mean that everybody wins. And I think that we will have many people who are going to be in an extremely difficult situation and will need the support of both the state and private organizations, uh, which is very similar to what happened in the 1920s, because you had some people living, uh, I've always liked to liken it to, to novels, you know, some people lived a life in the Great Gatsby and bought a lot of champagne and had a great time. And I absolutely see that happening again now without any question. But you also had a lot of people who lost their footing on the world economy and slipped off and didn't find their way back maybe for two generations. So uh, to say that it's one or the other is wrong. 
And I think that's one of the one of the mistakes that we make both in economics and in geopolitics is trying to predict outcomes as if they're binary, but they're not. You can have multiple scenarios occurring at the same time. I would say in emerging markets, we have an even more complex situation because of the introduction of um, a little bit of inflation, uh, a bit of social unrest. And again, we could see those with um, assets and resources doing very well. We see record high prices for commodities, for example. And at the same time, real devastation from the lack of economic growth and, and the COVID shutdown. So, so bottom line is you will be able to find whatever it is you're looking for. And so what matters is what are you looking for? Now, I, I'm an optimist, so I believe that we've had a period of very creative destruction, as Schumpeter put it, and now we're gonna be in a period of very creative creation. And I'm very optimistic that this will be like the Industrial Revolution. This will be a period of exponential growth, innovation. There's record amounts of money available and looking for a home, record wave of entrepreneurial energy, and governments are definitely throwing a huge amount of money into the mix. Digitization makes it even easier to, to make things work. And I'll finish with a geopolitical topic, which is the new space race is for computational power. So, you know, when we think about geopolitics through history, Initially, uh, the way you, you won in geopolitics is through control over land, territory. And then, you know, 17th, 18th century, Alfred Thayer Mahan tells us it's all through sea power. And then in the last hundred years and the two world wars, it's air power that wins wars and is the domain of conflict. Today, I think we're in an era of data power and whoever has the greatest capacity to gather it, to manipulate it, to compute it, to compress it, that's who wins. And this is why governments are spending record amounts on supercomputers, quantum computing, data collection, data manipulation, and that is the new space race. And luckily, the civilian spinoffs will be as big or bigger than the spinoffs from the NASA space race of the 60s and the 70s. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. We have to certainly unpack a little bit of what uh, you've uh, actually, you, you gave us so many, so many ideas that I need to unpack this a little bit. Now, the first is that, do I understand correctly that uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of energy is going to come actually from the civilian sector uh, as uh, compared to the previous industrial revolution where the state was the main agency being in charge for uh, more or less for the transformation. Uh, now, um, in these uh, technologies and specifically uh, regarding the, the, the trends that you've outlined, uh, uh, such as in space, digi digitalization, and so on, uh, you will we, you will find basically a lot of civilian components, right? So startups, bottom up, also yeah. transformation. Is that correct? Uh, the way I the, the way I understood it. Well, look, governments are supporting this as well, and why? Because it's so clear that 
you know, two thirds of the net new jobs in industrialized economies are always created by firms that employ less than 50 people. So it's the little companies that are the backbone of any kind of growth story. And they're the ones who generate most of the innovation, not big companies, little ones. Even Apple says that they're not really a big company, they're a roof. And underneath the roof, they have many, many companies of 10 people, wholly, all highly innovative. And also let's understand that, you know, we literally live in this era of the mobile phone, which is a supercomputer that basically permits small groups of individuals uh, and frankly, large ones now too, via these platforms that we're speaking on right now to basically come together to create. And um, this is a very interesting phenomena. You know, you've interviewed my dad, you mentioned uh, Harold Malmgren, and he became quite famous early in his career for writing about the theory of the firm. Why do people come together to create organizations? So, you know, back before the invention of the mobile phone, you had to come together in a building, in a place, and the more of you, the better. But because of a mobile phone, this is no longer the world we're in. And you can create companies without even needing to be in the same location as your co-founders. Um, I'm, I'm doing that right now. I'm, I'm a partner of the Monaco Foundry, which is uh, an accelerator incubator for startups. And we are having an unbelievable time finding extraordinary businesses that we're able to help and nurture and support without even being with them. It's, it's quite extraordinary. So will this make the world economy more productive? Oh, absolutely, definitely. And that is also, by the way, excellent news for that parts of the world that desperately need some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, acceleration of uh, you know, business, uh, specifically, as you mentioned, uh, emerging markets. And also, I suppose, um, would you agree that, for instance, uh, some parts of the world that has had uh, to catch up with uh, the third wave of uh, industrial of the industrial revolution are now going to skip certain stages are and are going to immediately jump on the fourth one, basically trying to capitalize on the digitalization. So for instance, as you mentioned, uh, being now in Africa, for instance, or in Latin America or in some parts of Asia, you can actually connect yourself with, uh, with other, with other businesses. Uh, you know, if you are in a, in the startup, um, in the startup um, domain and uh, use these technologies uh, for, for your business. Do I understand that correctly? Well, yeah, what's really funny is when you phrase it that way, what comes to my mind is finally the United States will start to catch up, right? It's the emerging markets who for a long time, you know, have, have had much more advanced uh, mobile phone payment systems, you know, in America, you still go to pay with a credit card and if it has a chip and pin, they're like, Oh, that's so cool. What is that? Right. Everybody's still used to having a signature. So who has to catch up? It's not the Kenyans or the, you know, folks in, in emerging markets in Africa. It's, it's the middle of America that's behind. And in a way that's kind of encouraging that we're seeing countries with, with little financial resources able to adopt the most sophisticated technologies. That means we should be able to do it in the industrialized world too. 
And that means the whole world economy will be better placed to function at a higher level. And by the way, that brings me also to another idea, which uh, was uh, actually, which was actually uh, well mentioned by another guest of mine during uh, the, this same digital uh, talk format, mm -hmm. um, uh, Samir Saran, who is actually based in India. And uh, he presented this very interesting idea that there will be also a new, there will be new front runners, such as the case with India, where they will be actually aiming for the five billion market of digital products where they do not need uh, highly sophisticated uh, digital, digital products uh, to sell on markets, as it is often the case with, with the so-called West where we have actually specialized in really, uh, you know, in really luxury or in, um, in, the, in the high price segments, right? Even if we take all these products, for instance. So you don't need necessarily to specialize in this if you can service uh, 5 billion markets, you know, with uh, very cheap but technologically well-functioning products. And I think that uh, do, do, first of all, do you think that there is this uh, niche now for India also as a kind of a, an alternative to China, given that there are, now there is this talk about, uh, you know, global uh, supplies reconfigurations, moving away from China, businesses moving away from China due to uh, certain political uh, realities uh, in the country? Yeah, so uh, I definitely see global supply chains, first of all, are broken at both ends, the supply end and the demand end. Uh, the demand will come back, I believe. The supply is harder to fix for many reasons. Some of it's geopolitics and people don't want to be buying many products from China because they're perceived to um, be data collecting machines. And so there's this issue that the Trump administration raised uh, about Huawei. This is not over with. That is still a big conversation. And the Biden team have uh, the same or a harsher view about this than ever before. And also companies are just saying, I don't want to not only risk my proprietary data, but I just don't want to wait that long for the products to come across the world. So I see the relocalization of supply chains. And I've had to make up a word for this because, uh, you know, people think globalization is over. And I disagree. Globalization used to mean all the jobs go to China. The new version where you're relocalizing everywhere is globalization at a new level. So I've called it glocalization. It's, it's a global localization of production, which means we're going to get much more competition in the world economy, which I think is a healthy thing. Uh, China doesn't disappear, but it becomes more of its own ecosystem. And you can already see signals. You know, I talk a lot about signals, again, being um, indicators of the future, but not yet confirmed by the data. So one of the signals is that when you buy a product from China, and I'll give an example, you get a little thing with the instructions, right? All the instructions are in Mandarin because they're not even bothering with English or French or German or any other language because their domestic market's so big 
why would they even care? Your, your, the, the level of sales is too small to warrant their attention. This tells me that the Chinese uh, manufacturers are very domestic in their orientation. And actually, is that such a bad thing? They were 100% export oriented for several decades. Now they're building their domestic market, which needs to be built with their own brands that won't travel to the rest of the world. They'll work in China, but maybe not anywhere else. Just as we have lots of brands in the West that work in the West, but they'll never work in China. So I guess my, my end game here is that you mentioned India. The answer is India benefits from everything I've just said. Uh, and I think investors are looking at the world now much more actively than before because the technology and as you say, digitization, digitalization allows you to know what's going on without having to be there and see it, right? You can watch what's happening to my production line. Where are the goods moving? You no longer have to like hope that the person on the ground is telling you the truth you're actually able to just pick up your mobile phone and say, where is the product right now? How, where are the shipments? What's going on? Who's doing what? This becomes incredibly powerful for raising the value of assets in faraway places, wherever that may be. That's fascinating. And by the way, speaking of globalization, I think that it's important to, 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 to stress that uh, globalization has been here for the last 2000 years mm -hmm. since since we've seen how rome ri has raised to power to 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 global power mm -hmm. so the roman empire has been built on global connectivity and oh, this sure. very same idea was taken then later by other empires and other regional powers that try to become a global power. So uh, I agree with you and I see it in a very similar way that we are just in a cycle of the globalization right now where you see a lot of efforts to disconnect uh, to a certain degree due to a geopolitical reasoning, but uh, you cannot disconnect the world that has been that has been interconnected for the last 2000 years. However, probably the speed has been too 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 high and uh, maybe the acceleration right now i mean a lot of political stakeholders are now um noticing that they can no longer control the processes that the unforeseen uh, outcome of uh, this kind of uh, uh this kind of globalization speed uh, um has been namely the, the the rise of china and now they can no longer put this on hold right mm -hmm. so where do you see Europe in this picture. I mean, Europe has been has been gaining from these cycles of globalization for also for 2000 years. And we've seen a lot of European powers being at the top of the pyramid, right? In terms of global power projection. Um, right now, it doesn't look so optimistically for Europe. And then when we talk about Europe, right now we have also the, uh, our own dividing lines. On the one side, we've noticed with the, uh, now with the vaccination uh, that uh, it's no longer about Brexit. Now it's, uh, it's all about what you are going to hear in the European capitals on continental Europe is why is UK doing so well? 
Why are they so ahead? And we've been so slow and we've been so inefficient and so on and so forth. And of course, on the other side, I mean, seen from the British uh, perspective, it's a kind of a, a good point to be proud and also to base your reasoning why Brexit was necessary, right? So how do you see the, the outlook? What is your anticipation for you know, for the for the macro geoeconomic outlook for Europe, and then also uh, what what are the niches for uh, cooperation? I'm still very much convinced that UK and Europe will cooperate out mm -hmm. of necessity, at least mm -hmm. in some areas. So, what's your take on that? Yeah, and I was very privileged to work on the preparations for Brexit uh, as an advisor to the government. Um, during that time and it was so interesting how it was such an emotional issue and I have to say geopolitics these days is dominated by the emotional aspect of, of the policy issues that we face um, and my feeling was uh, you know Britain would be successful either way in or out they would just be different pathways um, but by no means does it make any sense to say again that it's binary, it's either or. I mean, this idea that and it's always the way it's phrased. Will Britain be successful or Europe? And I'm like, listen, we've got 170 countries plus in the world, some of which are all succeeding at the same time. Right. It, why does it have to be one or the other? We can see two succeed with very different political and business models. And also, what's your definition of success? So, you know, the British would measure success very differently, um, for example, than the French, you know, having lived in France, right? In France, it, it is a sign of success that you can take a long lunch, right? That is part of what you're working so hard for. So these are cultural issues that one has to respect. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a reason that Britain prior to Brexit and I believe post-Brexit will have the most successful uh, startup scene in all of Europe. It will have the most, uh, the quickest recovery from the slowdown from the COVID crisis. Um, and why? Because it has this very entrepreneurial, not only culture, but legal and political infrastructure that really facilitates the fast movement of capital from losers to winners, uh, from people with savings to people with ideas. Uh, Europe is not as fluid at doing that. But you know, having said that, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm sitting as a partner of uh, an uh, incubator accelerator based in Monaco, and we're seeing fabulous startups from all over Europe, really great, innovative, interesting companies. So I think maybe we shouldn't talk about this in terms of countries and borders. It's more that everywhere, there are going to be some people who figure out this new landscape and make it work. And everywhere, there are gonna be a lot of people who don't. And that's, that's the universal reality as opposed to any one place. Um, and I think the same is happening from the Middle East to Africa, to the middle of America. Uh, this is a moment of extraordinary transformation. Um, and that's why, as you said at the opening, you know, maybe I lean a little bit more on the private sector innovation because I think government hasn't quite caught up with 
you know, what's the reality? Uh, and, and they're going to be wrong footed for a while as they try to figure out how do we take back all the money we threw into the system without creating a disaster? Um, and how do we fix the debt problem? That's where their focus is going to be. But the answer to the question is going to be all businesses created by entrepreneurs. And speaking of such, do you think that uh, the approach that the European Union is trying to, to apply, namely uh, a very, very, or let's say quite, uh, quite centralized one, uh, quite top-down approach of, you know, pumping a lot of money into various uh, fields and trying to support, uh, you know, not only revive the economy, but also support uh, certain sectors. Do you think that this makes more sense or wouldn't it be better to also try to revive this uh, startups um, startups um, landscape uh, also on the old continent instead of you know facilitating all these huge heavy heavy projects of trillions of euro that are very ambitious i mean they they indeed uh, strive for uh, quite uh, quite uh, ambitious uh, goals but uh, what is your take is this an efficient way of uh, because you said there might be several successful pets it doesn't have to be only one is this a successful pet for the European Union and for the European Union member states to and, catch and up. yeah, I hear you again. Um, I find it uh, so difficult to talk about the EU as one entity as well in this respect because we're going to see very different performance from different economies. Um, I think a country like Portugal, for example, is more likely to have a faster rebound and more innovative approach. And that's partly because I think Greece as well, another one. Why these two? Because they got into such a mess with the debt problem and were forced to innovate, were forced to update the rules. They ended up selling off state assets, privatizing. Um, they, uh, in Greece uh, and in Portugal to a degree, defaulted on some of the debt in order to clear the, the pressure and the burden. And, you know, just prior to COVID, the hottest place in Western Europe for business was Athens. It, it was absolutely on fire right before COVID happened. And I expect that it will be on fire again with COVID lifting. And you look at countries like Italy, for example, which have not addressed the debt problem, that don't have an easy way to do that. And they're sort of stuck with this, it's like a wrecking ball of, of a debt burden that bears down on the economy and, and prevents it from being able to move forward. And this is causing political stress and strain. Uh, we see it in Germany too. It's a big contributing factor to the rise of the um, hard right in Western Europe, uh, in France and Germany and Austria and many, the Netherlands. Uh, so, so when we talk about Europe and the EU, is it a uniform story? It's not, it's, it's a completely different story, not only country by country, but again, I think this moment in history, it's much safer to think about it as even company by company or community by community. It's, it's more granular and there are going to be great opportunities to make place, to make money in all these places, but in very different ways.
Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that that is really interesting way of looking at it, and not just this. Uh, I also think that this kind of uh, coherent way of uh, looking at things, always putting everything into one in the same, um, yeah, spot, so to say, uh, it's not really helpful, but. Uh, but uh, we will we will soon uh, actually see what uh, what uh, kind of what kind of dimension is going to is going to present itself following the COVID nineteen crisis. Now I have a tricky question for you, which I think is really good one. Okay. As uh, as uh, as uh, regards uh, your signals, what you've mentioned several times, and for those who would be interested in understanding uh, the concept of singles in a much uh, in you know in a better way, so uh, it's uh, the one question is what are the three most important geoeconomic signals that keep you awake at night? Uh, so you have to be a little bit more negative for a second, <laughs> but then. I also want to ask you, what are the three main geoeconomic signals that make you smile about the future? Yeah, I love this. Um, well, actually, let me phrase this where it, it's going to sound back to front. But one of the things that worries me is that people are too negative. And that actually, the recovery is coming faster, sooner, more sharply, and people aren't ready for this. So my worry is it is going to get better and people won't catch this. So that's, I know that's, that's an optimism point, but, but it's just as dangerous from a risk perspective um, if people miss the upturn. But it's, it would be typical of humans to miss the upturn. I mean, they missed the upturn after the financial crisis, right? Everybody is so sure we'll never recover. The one thing is we always recover. We always recover. Uh, so I don't think this is a repeat of the 1930s, generally speaking. But I do think there will be communities, individuals, families that come into serious hardship. And we need to pay attention to them. But it's so much easier to do that now than it was in the 1930s when you had no data, you had no mobile phones, you had no track and trace, you had no statistics. We now not only do we have all the information and you can see where it's happening, but the tolerance for pain is so much lower. People won't tolerate really awful treatment of, of members of the community. They'll demand that it gets addressed. So another thing that keeps me up at night, which is geopolitics, um, is this strange situation where we are already in conflict, but it's happening in places where the public can't see it. So we're in conflict already over space. And the United States, China, Russia, India, to a lesser extent, are all now really actively competing for who has domination over the highest altitudes in space. And why? Because you can control what happens on the planet more easily if you control the satellites and the data gathering and the weaponry, space-based. So the public thinks nothing's going on. And in fact, a fortune, the record sums of money are being spent in the defense community. And it's going on two things. One is space. And the other is what I mentioned before, computational power. Uh, also in geopolitics, 
the conflicts are increasingly happening in locations that where there's no reporting, where you, the public doesn't see. So for example, I've been for some years paying attention to um, China's plans to divert the water supply from the Himalayas to Western China in order to increase their agricultural and food production, which they need to do because they cannot feed the population and they need more food. But as you move the water supply, not only do you create environmental issues, but you deprive some 60 million people of water in India, Bangladesh, um, and that's going to definitely create geopolitical problems. Um, also, the huge race for control over raw materials, resources, minerals, the Chinese presence off the west coast of Africa, for example, where huge new oil and gas fields have been found, um, the race to control, uh, to get control over supply chains of raw materials, the Belt and Road Initiative, which has been a very powerful phenomena in geopolitics. And will that persist? You know, now countries are realizing they may have borrowed the money from the Chinese, like Macedonia, right? We borrowed a billion to build all these incredible uh, bits of infrastructure, and now we have to pay back and we haven't got any money to do it. So how does the geopolitics play out? Kenya is another good example where that's happened as well. The Chinese built a port. Now they go, okay, we take it back because it belongs to us. And everybody's like, wait, now we have the Chinese government controlling a physical territory in Africa. So it worries me a little bit that the public thinks that nothing's going on. And in fact, we have a really significant geopolitical race for territory and for raw materials, it's just in places the public isn't paying attention to. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I suppose that the only a very, very small minority of, uh, of, of, of uh, the people would know that uh, China and Russia are already planning to build an international space station on the moon, which should be actually a very worrisome uh, information. I mean, the very fact that they are planning or discussing this kind of things. I mean, think about uh, the potential systemic coordination in the space between these forces, you know, uh, or uh, as you mentioned, uh, the case of uh, water. I think water is going to be the, the oil of the 21st century. A lot of conflicts, a lot of tensions will actually emerge because of the need for access uh, to water resources and of course food and energy will certainly be also part of the you know of this portfolio food water uh energy that uh, is going to shape a lot of uh, a lot of decisions to go uh if necessary also into into military conflicts uh, and then you mentioned also uh, raw materials and um rare earths and uh, let's just take the very recent case of afghanistan where now once again there is the discussion of uh, u.s troops withdrawal under a new u.s president where i just say that uh, under no circumstances i could imagine that uh, u.s troops would leave afghanistan i mean to full scale uh, to, to the full uh, scope in the full scope um, because Afghanistan is uh, apparently and according to geological studies um, lying on one trillion of US dollars rare um, 
mm. earths and uh, you know minerals that are very much needed also for what for the digitalization so everything mm. is once again interconnected and uh, you notice how this classic uh, concepts of uh, power and realpolitik are once again back on the agenda because these are the realities you cannot operate without having these accesses right mm. uh, okay but what actually this is this is these are the worrisome signals but what makes you smile what is really what is really giving you uh, putting a smile on your face if you think uh, in terms of positive signals sure well um there's a very famous uh engineer called buckminster fuller uh he invented the geodesic dome and in the 1920s he came up with this wonderful concept called ephemeralization it's a very long word but he described it as technology is changing in ways that will now be able to always do ever more with ever less this is very much happening where now we can create materials you know instead of needing to start with a material like a piece of wood uh, and shape it into what you need you can start with what is your need and shape the material you can build it atomic structure level upward and this change in human affairs is so profound uh and so i believe this is right not only can you build ever more or create ever more with ever less you do it to the point where you can actually create something out of virtually nothing in other words ubiquity is now absolutely a norm whereas people still have a scarcity mindset uh they, they and that defines geopolitics everything we've just discussed about raw materials food water territory it's all based on the mindset that there's a finite amount and it's either mine or it's the other guys. But actually, ephemeralization is creating a world of ubiquity where we can solve many problems, meet many needs with ever less material inputs. So I think that's super exciting. And in fact, even what we're doing right now, speaking on this platform, we are creating something with almost no resources you know i mean what does it cost to pay for a for a zoom or for this system it's it's nothing so we're creating something out of nothing and i think this is so exciting and so interesting so empowering i'm also really thrilled at the way um technology is becoming it's the democratization of the access to the technology so that's happening on so many levels from making it less and less expensive to get your hands on a, a mobile device that doesn't have to be an Apple. It can be something that's designed more for a poor person in an emerging market, for example. Um, but also the democratization of access to digitization. So there's something now called GPT-3. And if uh, the audience hasn't heard about it, they need to look at it. And what it fundamentally means is that in order to create something uh, in, normally when you think of creating something in, in, on the internet, you, you think about coding something, or you think about software, it's coding. Well, you need a coder to do it, right? Yeah. Someone with specialist skills, it's just its own language or languages, but GPT-3 does it in English. 
So now we're going to have regular people who will be able to create software and internet-based systems without needing to be a coder. Now, this won't happen overnight, but the direction of travel is clear. And this is super empowering, just ridiculously empowering. And I think that democratization is going to serve the world well. And it's also very important as a counterbalance to the state sur uh, surveillance. Uh, yes. Which, uh, of course, uh, is now also being pushed forward thanks to thanks to the technological breakthroughs uh, that uh, certain states are using and capitalizing on, right? Well, and you know, I've written a lot about surveillance capitalism uh, and uh, societal surveillance in this new data world. The Chinese social credit system being an example of how you um, control the behaviors of people in your society by having access to all their data. Um, and it's going a bit further now uh, with the introduction of the new Chinese DCEP, the digital currency. Um, and I've gone so far as to describe it as a surveillance system disguised as money. Uh, and I think that's not a bad description. And by the way, this is not exclusive to the Chinese, right? We're doing the same thing in the West. We just privatize the function. So we have JP Morgan doing the test case for the introduction of sovereign digital currency in the United States, for example. And will that be a surveillance system disguised as money? Yeah, it will also. So this is the point. You're combining surveillance with underlying financial technology. And uh, so I think a big new development is the introduction of sovereign cryptocurrencies, meaning nations introduce their own new species of money. It's not just a digitized version of the old currency. It's um, an actual new form of money. And uh, we need to ask questions about what are you know, what are our rights? Uh, what are the laws in this new space? Because there really aren't any, there are limited legal structures to protect the citizens in this new environment. Mm -hmm. And also it's an interesting uh, question how the cryptocurrencies that are right now really gaining a lot of importance getting along with uh, the central banks digital currencies because the one is a very much centralized uh, top-down project mm -hmm. uh, being facilitated by state institutions and the, the other one is this uh, democratization project coming from 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 the people for the people with the people more or less right yes so there is a kind of a conflict between these two and i i still think uh, and maybe maybe i'm 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 wrong on that that uh, um this would be probably the reason why cryptocurrencies such as bitcoin will not stand a chance once central banks decide to impose their digital you know digital currencies on the population because the one cannot go Maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's I'm a open super, to your... super interesting question. What's the future of the cryptocurrencies once sovereigns engage 
in this space? I think it's a very important question to ask, especially this moment when uh, crypto is reaching record valuations and the real economy is beginning to accept Bitcoin payments, for example. Uh, so you can go to the grocery store practically and start to pay in Bitcoin. So um, the strange thing is that people thought that having cryptocurrency meant you were outside of the jurisdiction of the state. The reality is that you were always inside the jurisdiction of the state. Um, and I don't just mean in terms of law. I also mean, you know, at the end of the day, when you're typing in your Bitcoin password on your, on your keyboard, what, you really think that there's no observation of what's, I mean, we live in a world of surveillance capitalism. So I think the only person who doesn't remember your Bitcoin password will be you. Like they're, the government knows when you're transacting in these things. You can't hide this any longer. And that's why actually it's normalizing Bitcoin and crypto because you just declare. You just declare, I'm, this is, I'm making this much money, and then you pay your tax on that, and that's the way the game works. It's not about hiding from the system. It is part of the system. Uh, and the other thing is when governments introduce the sovereign crypto, it's so fascinating to watch how they do it. They basically give it away. So this is what the Chinese are doing. You wake up in the morning, and you pick up your mobile phone, and you go, I have like $1,000 that I didn't have before. And it says in a little text message, oh, you can spend this on anything you want. Have fun. This is how people adopt it. They, they're just given it. And eventually it becomes mainstream, normalized, and part of the normal payments process. And then what do you need Bitcoin for if this other thing does similar things? So I think it's all getting a little bit blurry. But uh, I, the other thing is, look, this is all about financial innovation. And like everything else that's innovating, money is too. And this is actually very exciting to see new forms of money coming to life. In the end, it's going to be also the question about trust. And we will find mm. out <laughs> whether trust will going to be imposed <laughs> top down or whether it's going to be gained uh, bottom up right so a very very fascinating process uh, to 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 watch and mm. to observe but now i want to i want you to uh, go uh, into the direction of uh, the hardcore geopolitics as as you can might as you might guess my next question is uh, very much linked to the trends um, derived from the systemic competition mm -hmm. and rivalry between the United States and China. What is your take? How do you how do you see this uh, systemic competition evolving now under Biden's administration? And also, what role do you see for United Kingdom for this very special relationship between Great Britain and uh, United States. Now, probably, UK will also take some uh, some uh, take care of some new uh, kind of leadership, uh, where United States have neglected certain uh, alliances or partnerships. So, what is your take on that? And also, of course, do you see a role for the European powers for the rest of Europe, so to say, in this? Uh, 
in these matters. Yeah, okay, so that's a lot to cover. Um, first of all, you know, the United States, um, it's, it's easy to assume that uh, President Trump was not interested in international affairs. We withdrew from international affairs and now we're getting back involved in it again. I don't think that's an accurate picture. I think that the U.S. has been getting, has been getting less and less involved in international affairs, um, frankly, since the George W. Bush administration. You know, President Obama had very little interest in international affairs. That was just not his scene. He just, that wasn't his priority. Um, and in this presidency, there, the orientation is towards domestic problems. Um, domestic issues are the priority. So uh, as a nation, for most of my lifetime, it has not played the leadership role the rest of the world wanted. But I say that advisedly because this is also a period of history where everyone complained that the U.S. was doing too much at a time when they were really withdrawing. And I suspect if the U.S. turned around and became active, everyone would say, this is not your business. You know, why are you getting involved? So maybe you can't win no matter what you do. Like, you know, if it's in the case of the United States, if we if we get engaged, everyone tells us to go home. And if we don't get engaged, they tell us to come. And so, you, you know, what are you going to do, basically? What is more important is the international rules of the game, the, the known uh, sort of institutional and rule structures. And they are all under pressure because they're not serving us very well, given everything's changed. So, you know, NATO, you know, if the thing about NATO is everyone agrees it's not working very well, but the minute you say that, then they all say, well, well NATO is very important. Yes, but it's still not working very well. And it needs modernizing. It needs to, to you know, it, it needs to, to review the why and 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 ask the pointed question why do we have tanks and troops in a particular location um you know is it really effective to do this in this way if if you hadn't been doing it that way already for whatever 40 years would you really do it this way now no you wouldn't so does that make you anti-international if you raise these questions or anti-nato no so this is hard. We're, we need to have a debate about modernizing the rules and the institutions of international affairs and expecting the U.S. to do all the work that isn't working and hasn't been for like the last four presidents. So um, there's a, I think there's a, a lot we need to discuss in the world of geopolitics that is difficult, awkward, really just hard and nobody really wants to do it and they're too busy doing other things and there is also i see a question actually that is very much related to this current uh, discussion uh what is your take actually on the american russian relations do you mm. see an improvement or a further deterioration um now we've um found out that uh, Biden actually invited uh, Putin to a bilateral meeting, a bilateral summit. 
to discuss uh, to discuss some important issues. Um, there is even the speculation that it might take place in Vienna. So, actually, do you think that uh, there will be a change or shift, or like I said, uh, maybe even further deterioration in the relations between these two countries? Yeah. Um... So this gets to the heart of a very interesting question, which is, are we in a new Cold War? And most people in the strategic security community will say, we are not. This is not a new Cold War. Uh, and they'll list all the reasons why. But we're in a cold something. I don't know what we want to call it. But the relationships have been distinctly chilly for some time. And the typical view of American institutions, and it's, it's always hard to say the American view because there are always multiple views at any given time, and the same on the other side, um, is that actually Russia under the current leadership does pose a strategic security threat to the United States. And, and not just in terms of, um, you know, things like Ukraine, but also in terms of the nuclear arsenal, you know, in the last 25 years, the Russians spent a lot more time and attention making sure that their nuclear arsenal was fully operational than we did in the West. And so now there's a sense of, whoa, wait a minute, how has that changed the balance of power? Uh, so there, another thing is that in general, um, the American establishment, whether on the left or the right, have a persistent view that Russia has become almost like an organized crime state. Uh, it's not uh, a traditional superpower. It's one where private organized crime interests have um, greater voice, greater involvement um, than ever before. And that actually there's a long tradition of that in Russia, but it's come back into the mainstream so is that view right or wrong is a different question, but I think the perception is there that this is the truth. Some people felt that, you know, once again, President Trump left office, uh, that um, these issues would somehow go away. But in fact, the, quite the opposite. They've intensified because the Biden team do view Russia as a strategic security threat, just as they view China as a strategic security threat. So we're in a world where the U.S. is um, worried about its strategic security threats rather than feeling um, uh, in a more generous state of mind that, you know, these they can be made more friends and allies than opponents. It feels a lot more like a more opponent environment than, um, than I think even the public really recognize. Mm -hmm. And I see another question coming from the audience, which is uh, linked to emerging uh, economies. Uh, you've mentioned it uh, during the conversation, but maybe you can uh, unpack it, unpack it a little bit uh, more. Um, so there are indeed millions of people which will, who will actually slide into uh, serious poverty, serious poverty levels following the COVID-19 pandemic. So also you mentioned uh, with the with the surging inflation, um, I think you were the one who also pointed to the stagflation prior to the inflation during the recession cycles prior to COVID-19. So how vulnerable is this 
are these parts of the world? Um, and uh, is there a risk, a serious risk that this, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, um, chronicle poverty might also turn into a serious structural problem for the global economy? Do you think that this is something that is um, only, you know, happening now for a period of time while the global economy recovers or is it going to uh, you know be further prolonged during other structural problems mm. in these parts of the world it's it's a great question so um looking back on the last 50 years we have persistently and consistently moved people out of poverty we have lifted living standards very consistently over this period of history and technology makes it even easier to do that all the time. So I think COVID, there's a real question about how has it hurt people? So even in the industrialized world, governments gave away so much free money, it protected the population from a much worse outcome. So did that prevent many from falling into poverty? I think it absolutely did prevent people from moving into poverty. Does that mean no one moved into poverty? No, some people will have really been hit super hard by these events and some nations will have been hit super hard. But what's our capacity to repair the problem? I would say better than ever in history better than ever in history. And again, we'll be able to do ever more with ever less to improve those situations. Um, I also think, you know, if you look at most parts of the world, they become more savvy about the need to allow the private sector to do its work. You know, you see countries like Rwanda, which were famous for terrible poverty and terrible depth of war, and now has become a tech innovation center. I mean, a major tech innovation center where, you know, you go to Rwanda to hire coders because there are world-class coders there. This is a radical change for good. Um, so again, I'm, I'm not so worried that the hit's been so huge that we can't recover. I actually think the opposite is that um, we've set the conditions now to have a more radical, faster, sharper, stronger recovery than anybody imagined. And um, if a country doesn't get it right, it's not because it wasn't an option, it's maybe because they made a mistake more. It's interesting because uh, a member of the Austrian government uh, um, made a very interesting statement uh, right at the beginning of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, here in Europe, when uh, the pandemic hit uh, Europe uh, and all European uh, countries uh, were basically hit to a great extent. Uh, so uh, he said that this time it's about the too many to fail. So it's no longer about the too big to fail or the too central to fail, but the too many to fail. And as you pointed out, if uh, they were left behind, so to say, it would have been probably uh, by now a serious uh, serious uh, situation uh, not just in europe or in the united states but all over the world um so uh indeed uh, the governments uh, interfered and uh, introduced all these um, all these measures for the sake of the too many to fail because they realized also that uh, 
uh, a lot was at stake at uh, that time. Mm -hmm. But speaking of governments, and this is my final question, I'm looking all, all the time, I'm looking at the background, I'm looking at your book, The Infinite... The yeah, infinite yeah. leader. My publisher makes me see. They're like, put it up for people can see it. So <laughs> yes, that was yeah, a really yeah, good. Sure. That was a really good decision because I I wasn't planning to ask you about this book particularly, but now it makes me ask you a particular question okay. about your uh, most more more recent books, the Leadership Lab and the uh, Infinite in, Infin, Infinite uh, sorry, leader. Mm -hmm. uh, and that question is very much linked to the fact that uh, one of the phenomena that uh, the pandemic ex uh, has exposed was the serious lack of, of, um, of leadership. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the consequences that we are still very much being faced with are due to the lack of such leadership. So my question to you is what would be your recommendation i mean based on based on your work in this particular domain i mean having written two books on on on, on leadership uh what would you, would be your recommendation for the future political decision makers how the future political decision maker should look like in terms of personal qualities and in terms of uh, you know, a package how to solve the problems of the 21st century. Yeah. So I think it's more than a failure of individual leaders. It's a failure to understand that the nature of leadership has itself changed. Um, and this will sound a little, a little silly maybe, but you know, the word leadership, used to be about the leader and now it's so much more about the ship it's about the team it's about the community it's about the voters and so the the type of person that can command trust is very different we used to believe that there was one person with a title at the top whether that was president or ceo or prime minister and that they had the greatest authority and most and all the answers and we just waited for them to tell us which direction are we going. But again, in this, I keep using my, my mobile phone, but you know, in an era where this is in your pocket and your ability to know and understand the true nature of a situation or to get fake news about the non-true nature of the situation um, has changed the confidence level of the public to get involved and engaged in political questions. So the way you lead has to be very different. And so one of the things that needs to happen is there can't be any difference between what you say and what you do uh, because everyone can see it. We're in an era of transparency. So uh, if you say that you know everybody's gonna have access to the COVID vaccine, but what you do doesn't permit that or it only goes to the elite, doesn't go to the people more generally. Everyone is going to know this. You can't hide anymore in politics. Also, the style of politics has to change, of leadership. Um, 
as an example, I got asked a lot during COVID being not only a person focused on geopolitics, but I happen to be a woman. So I was asked a lot, you know, why is it that the female leaders are outperforming the male leaders in the response to the COVID crisis in terms of the level of trust? And I would say a lot of it had to do with style. Uh, and the female leaders like Jacinda Ahern, whose politics I don't particularly agree with, but when you watch how she announced the lockdown measures in New Zealand versus Boris Johnson, it's so striking. So Boris Johnson basically says, we're going to have a lockdown. I'm not going to tell you why. I'm the prime minister and these are the rules and we're enforcing them. You're just going to do it. And Jacinda Ahern says, we're going to have a lockdown. I don't have any more information than you have. We are all waiting to hear from all these scientists what's the right thing to do. So while we don't know, let's take the most um, cautious stance for our whole benefit as a community, not for me as prime minister to exercise power, but rather for the safety of the community as a whole. And she created not just a following in New Zealand, but a global following, right? She exercised the qualities of leadership that the modern world economy, the modern world cultural environment seem to demand. And I think that's what we're gonna see in the coming decades is the style of leadership must change because the circumstances have changed and the old style top down, I'm telling you what you're going to do, isn't working anymore. And a bottom up, we're all in this together. You know, I may have this title, but, you know, I'm working with you. Come help me. That works better at the nation level. It works better at the company level. It works better at the community level. It works better in families as well nowadays. So this is a, this is a culture change of epic proportions and obviously a borderless one, which actually, um, well, can be applied to any, any, any kind of uh, state or corporation or also community, as you said. And this is, I think, a fascinating way to um, conclude this conversation. Um, I'm already looking at the clock and I'm feeling a little bit of, uh, uh, a, a little bit inconvenient knowing that now the pubs are open finally uh, in yeah. UK and it's probably an extraordinary situation on Friday evening. So um, I'm really, really grateful for all your insights. Um, please, to those of you who are interested in the work and in the books of uh, People Mountain, you can go check uh, her Twitter account, which is TRPPM on Twitter, easily to be found, award-winning author, former presidential advisor, sense maker, um, great, great, uh, with great insights for the future. And we very much need also a little bit more optimism. We are just too dark, too pessimistic, <laughs> most of us, I would say. Um, so follow her on Twitter, go check her uh, webpage, uh, which is uh, uh, com, and get in touch with her. People, thank you very much for being with me for more than 70 minutes. And 
it's been quite of a journey really really exciting one and i once again learned so much from you and i really hope i really hope that we will meet again in london and of course you are also very much welcome in vienna thank you uh thank which, you so much which will not be appealing to you with a startup a, a huge startup scene but but it's it's evolving right now it's mm -hmm. evolving but at least with some really interesting sightseeing monuments <laughs> i know it well i know it well thank you so much that was great thank you thank you thank you for being with me absolutely